Uh, well, welcome to RUF, everyone. Uh, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Uh, and that just means that there are two fundamental ways that we can miss out on Jesus, that we can miss out on the good news. Uh, we can think that we're so bad uh, that he wouldn't want anything to do with us. And so we concentrate on uh, making ourselves better for him. Or conversely, we can think that we're so good that we don't actually need him. Uh, but the good news of the gospel is that we are acceptable in God's sight, completely based on what Jesus has done. And that when we place our faith in him, that is given to us as a gift, and we are secure. And that's what RUF is all about. Uh, and every semester in RUF, we do a sermon series. This semester, we're doing uh, one on the Old Testament called Every Story Whispers His Name. And our theme in this series is that the Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus and it gives us wisdom for the modern world. The Old Testament shows us the heart of Jesus and gives us wisdom for the modern world. Uh, and thus far in this series, we started in the New Testament in Luke 24 and kind of considered how Jesus read the Bible. And Jesus read the Bible with himself at the center. Uh, when he opened up the Old Testament, it was like looking in a mirror for him. Jesus saw himself at the center of the Bible. Uh, next, we looked at the creation story where God made everything. We saw this kind of as the foundation to the good news of the gospel, uh, that the reason that Jesus came, the reason that he came in bodily form, was because creation is good, and God is in the business of redeeming that which he created. Next, we looked at the story of the fall. Uh, we see the image bearers that God has made rebelled, and then God promises to fix it. Then we looked at the story of Noah, uh, which again is human beings rebelling, but God refusing to give up. At this moment of human beings' greatest sin, God moves closer, and he makes a covenant. And then we looked at the story of Abraham, where God promises to save the world through Abram's family, and in so doing, he assumes both sides of the covenant. And so now we're finally coming to the end of the book of Genesis. So we're doing an Old Testament overview, and we spent this long on the book of Genesis. Uh, that should tell you how important it is to the rest of the Bible. Uh, but we're looking at the last 13 chapters of Genesis, so uh, the reading could have been a lot worse. Kenna, yeah. I didn't do that to you. Um, but we're looking at the story of Jacob's family, and Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. And we're going to focus in specifically on his son, uh, a, a guy named Joseph. So uh, let me pray for us, and we can go ahead and get started. Our Father, we do pray uh, that you would meet us tonight, uh, that you would help us to see you. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, uh, and that you would help us to come away uh, transformed. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, I, uh, when I graduated high school uh, in, I guess, May of 2009, that dates me a little bit, uh, you know, worked a summer job and was getting ready to pack up to go off to school. I went to North Carolina State. So it was August of 2009. Uh, right before I left to go to school, uh, my grandpa, who was like a really significant person in my life, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and it was kind of a shock to me because I had never had anything like that happen to me. Uh, and so kind of the story of my entire freshman year was kind of based around his treatment. Uh, so it started off going really well. He was doing chemo, radiation, all that stuff. 
Uh, but then, you know, there were several kind of like dips in his treatment. Things weren't going well. Things were kind of dicey. And then about this time, my freshman year, so spring semester, my freshman year, things took a turn for the worst. Uh, and it was apparent, like immediately, that he, he was going to die soon. And so I was able to go up and visit with him and get some final time with him. And he ended up passing away in the middle of March. And so we had his funeral the following weekend. And I had never been to a funeral of someone that like I loved. Uh, it just wasn't a thing that was a normal experience for me. Some of you might know what that's like. Others of you might be like me. And that, that just feels like a weird thing. But I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, again, I was 18 years old. I had no idea what was going on inside of me. Um, but I was a pallbearer at the funeral, and it was this really significant day, but I just remember feeling kind of numb the entire day. And so I had drove from my college back home to go to the funeral. And then uh, after the funeral, I had, driven, I had driven separately. The funeral was about an hour and a half away from my home. And so I left first, uh, probably about 30 minutes ahead of my parents, so I was going to get home before them. And so it's after the funeral, I'm heading home, I get home, open up our carport door, um, and then go into the basement. And when I open the door, the first thing I see is our family dog of 17 years dead. And he was alive the day before. He just died, and he was like stiff as a board. And I'm there alone, and that's what I walked into. And I just remember, like, it's hard for me to tell this story, honestly, because I don't talk about it much, but it's, like, hard for me not to want to, like, crack a joke because it's just so awful, right? Like, I stepped out, I remember sitting down, and I just felt so numb. Like, I just didn't know what to do. And then eventually, like, my feelings kind of caught up to me. And, and the first thing I remember saying was, I didn't need this today. Like, God, what the heck are you doing? Like, why would something like this happen today of all days. Why would you let this happen? Uh, I wonder if you've had a similar experience. Uh, maybe you haven't had one that's like that drastic. Maybe you've had one that's actually a lot worse than that. Uh, but I think we can all relate to this feeling of saying, you know, saying to God, I didn't need this. Like, why in the world would you let something like this happen to me? What do we do with God in the midst of our pain? What do we do? The story that we're looking at tonight addresses that question. Uh, like I said, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, and Joseph was the, the great-grandson of Abraham. And Joseph's dad is a guy named Jacob, uh, also known as Israel. He had 12 sons. And these 12 sons went on to be the 12 tribes of Israel, which are really important throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But if you've read the story of uh, Jacob and his family you know these people are like a hot mess. They're an absolute mess. And you see that all throughout the passage. But amidst the mess, we see a God who is at work. We see as we look at this passage that God is at work in the mess. So that's going to be our main idea. God is at work in the mess. And we're just going to get at that at two points. First, the tragic mess of life in a fallen world. And second, the redemptive work of God through it all. So the tragic mess and the redemptive work of God. So first, let's look at the tragic mess of life in a fallen world. Uh, so the life of Joseph in this passage, I don't know if you've ever read it, or maybe you've seen the, uh, the VeggieTales adaptation of this. I did watch it and prep for this, and it's pretty good. Holds up. I'm not going to lie. I say a lot of bad things about VeggieTales, so I wanted to say something positive for once. It was pretty good. <laughs> 
Um, but I would encourage you to read this. It's Genesis 37 through 50. It's this really long story, but it's so relatable. But it, like, the, the life of Joseph is like a really sad country song. Like, it's just everything that could go wrong goes wrong for this guy. It's a mess. So this narrative focuses in on Joseph. And what's the issue with Joseph? What, what's his story? So we see at the beginning of the passage that Kenna read, uh, chapter 37, verse 2, Joseph, at this point, is 17 years old, and he's out with his brothers, and he brings back a bad report about his brothers to his father. Uh, and the word there for bad report, it, it's elsewhere translated like gossip. So essentially what he's doing is he's tattling on his brothers to his dad. Uh, and you can imagine that it would, be, it would be hard for his brothers to like him when he does that sort of thing, right? Uh, some of you might have little brothers who do that sort of thing. Uh, the person speaking to you is a little brother who did that sort of thing, right? This is pretty typical behavior. So what we notice at the beginning is Joseph is, he's kind of a brat, like, he's kind of a brat from the beginning of this story. Uh, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like, why is he a brat? Uh, verse 3, I think, tells us. It says, Israel, which is, again, another name for Jacob, said, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, and he made him a robe of many colors. Uh, I don't have time really to go into it, but what Jacob is doing when he is preferring uh, Joseph is he's repeating this terrible family pattern that's already happened a couple times throughout Genesis. This terrible family pattern of fathers or mothers preferring one child over another. And it's just not the way it's supposed to be. Some of you might know what that feels like. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And not only that, uh, Jacob has these crushing expectations for Joseph. The way that he's treating him, the privileged position that he gives him, would have been reserved for the oldest son the oldest son, and Joseph is the second youngest. So to be clear, to just kind of set the stage here, Joseph is being sinned against by Jacob from the beginning of this passage. The expectations that he is placing on him are more than he can possibly handle. So when we look at that, we can kind of understand a little bit of why he was being such a brat. And to make matters worse, uh, 17-year-old Joseph has these dreams. And as a 17-year-old boy would do, he tells his brothers these dreams without any sort of filter. And the takeaway of these dreams is, you are all going to serve me. <laughs> I'm going to be the best. And again, imagine what that would do in his older brothers. Like, it's daddy's favorite coming to them, telling them a story that I'm going to be the best. Naturally, we read throughout the story, his brothers hated him. The text says it three times. And if the Bible says something like three times in a short narrative, that's emphasis. They're trying to point that out. His brothers hated him. So there's all this family dysfunction that's going on in his life. But that's not it. Where, where does this lead to? Joseph's story actually gets more tragic. Uh, in chapter 37, verse 19, uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, sends him off a fair distance away to go check on his brothers. Again, this is daddy's favorite doing daddy's bidding going to check on all the other brothers. And they see him as he's coming up. And they say, here comes this dreamer, right? They, they've essentialized him based on this dream, this thing that they hate about him the most. Here comes this dreamer. You can hear the disdain in their voice. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into the pits. That escalated quickly. And again, what they're doing here, this is a repetition of something that's already happened in Genesis. This is what happens. 
The author is just saying we're repeating patterns here again and again and again. But luckily, uh, he doesn't get killed. He's actually uh, kind of miraculously saved, but then tragically sold into slavery, into Egypt, to a man named Potiphar. And you would think that maybe this would be the end of all the bad things that are going on to Joseph, but it actually gets worse. Um, Things actually for a little bit seem like they're going well with Potiphar until Joseph is wrongfully imprisoned for something that he didn't do. He then spends years in prison. So he went to Egypt when he was 17 years old, okay? And then he doesn't get out of prison until he's 30. So he spends all of this time in prison for something that he just didn't do. And in the early part of this story, especially as things are happening with his brother, uh, Moses, the author of this, makes a, a pretty clear omission. He doesn't talk about God at all as any of this is happening, as if to kind of like point out the fact that it seems like in Joseph's life that God is being silent. It seems like God isn't showing up. I don't know if you've uh, heard of the novel Silence. Uh, it's by a guy named Shusaku Endo. It was also made a movie recently, um, has Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield in it. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a fictional story that's set in Japan in the 17th century. Uh, and the story is of these two Portuguese Jesuit priests who go to Japan in order to essentially build up the church there. Uh, and Japan at this time was like, had a lot of problems with uh, the expansion of Christianity. They were pretty violently persecuting Christians at this time. And so these two Jesuit priests go to Japan, and then one of them, who ends up being the main character, is a guy named Father Rodriguez. And when he gets there, he's immediately inspired by their faith. Um, He is shocked at how willing to suffer these people are. But he just sees all of these terrible things happen again and again. Leaders of the faith are killed, and and, and it just keeps happening. And they they won't let go of their faith, but they're being killed again and again and again. And it leads Father Rodriguez to reflect on his own faith. He reflects like this. He says, 20 years have passed since the persecution broke out. The black soil of Japan has been filled with the lament of so many Christians. The red blood of priests has flowed profusely. And in the face of this terrible and merciless sacrifice offered up to him, God has remained silent. And then he continues on reasoning with himself. And he says, but I know what you're going to say. Their death wasn't meaningless. It was a stone which in time will be the foundation of the church, and the Lord never gives us a trial which we can't overcome. Like the numerous Japanese martyrs who have gone before, they now enjoy everlasting happiness. I also, of course, am convinced of all of this. And yet, why does this feeling of grief remain in my heart? And then kind of at the climax of the book, he says this, or it describes him this way. It says, A terrible anguish rose up in his breast. Violently he shook his head, trying to control the ugly imaginings, and the words rose up to his throat like nausea. Repeating the prayer again and again, he tried wildly to distract his attention, but the prayer could not tranquilize his agonized heart. And he said this, Lord, why are you silent? Why are you always silent? See, we're not really given a window into Joseph's experience in this story. The story just kind of retails, it just kind of retells all of the details of Joseph's life. But you have to imagine that he felt similar to Father Rodriguez at times. Joseph, see, he would have known about God's covenant. He would have known about the promise that God had made in the garden. 
known that God was going to bring an end to all this suffering somehow. He would have known about God's covenant commitment to Noah, that he was going to somehow, some way, preserve life, that he was going to curb the effects of sin in the world. He would have known about God's promise to his great-grandfather Abraham that somehow he was going to bring about the salvation of the world through his family. He would have known all of these things, and yet he is rotting in a jail cell a long way away from his family. And so the question for him has to be, where is God in this? Where is God in this? Where is God in the midst of this suffering that I am experiencing? See, for him, he must be asking, Lord, why are you silent? Why are you always silent? I wonder if that's a feeling that you can relate to. Is that a question that you can relate to when you experience the silence of God, what do you do with it? I think fortunately for us in this passage, silence is not the end of the story, though it is a part of the story. So let's move on and look at the redemptive work of God through it all. It's our second point here. So after uh, Joseph's story has been so tragic, things kind of begin to take a turn for the better for him. So Joseph, he's in jail And as he's in jail, he kind of gets this reputation as someone who knows what to do with dreams. He's a famous kind of interpreter of dreams. Uh, As it so happens, Pharaoh, the king of all of Egypt, has this really scary dream, really freaky dream of like cows, like skinny cows eating really fat cows. It's crazy. All sorts of stuff's going on. Naturally, you understand Pharaoh is a little troubled about this. So he asks one of his boys, the baker, I think, And it's like, hey, uh, I have this dream. Do you know anyone who can, like, interpret this for me? And he's like, oh, this guy, Joseph, in jail, he can interpret dreams. And Pharaoh's like, well, great, bring him up. So he comes and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And then he gives Pharaoh this interpretation that there's going to be this famine. Uh, There's going to be this famine. It's coming. That's what the dream means. And the Pharaoh is so pleased with this interpretation that he sets Joseph up to where he is number two underneath Pharaoh in all the land. Like, he, he goes from being a person in jail to a person who is, like, the number two in Egypt. And sure enough, this famine that he had predicted ends up happening. And it's so widespread that it ends up affecting his family back in Canaan. And so his father, Jacob, uh, talks to his brothers and says, I hear there's this guy in Egypt that's got a whole bunch of grain stored up. You guys need to make the journey to Egypt and go and get some grain so that we don't starve. So his brothers, having no idea where Joseph is, having no idea if he's still alive, ironically are going to see Joseph. And then the story picks up in chapter 45, where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He says in verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And then it says, but his brothers could not answer answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You can understand why they would be dismayed at his presence. They've just completely sold him out. They thought he was dead, and he ends up ironically being the one that can be their savior. He's the one that can actually help them out. But they've got to be expecting that he's just going to crush them. But that's not what he does. He says in verse 5, 45, 5, he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Uh, what he says here is, is amazing. It's amazing that he forgives them, first off, uh, but he draws their attention to God's action here. 
He says specifically, God sent me before you to preserve life. And this language of preserve life, this is the same root word that is used in the story of Noah to describe the ark. So this here, it's a pretty intentional callback to the covenant that God made with Noah. It's as if what he's saying here is that God, even through my suffering, was somehow accomplishing his covenant purpose. That God was being true to who he said he would be. He's saying that God, through him, was preserving life and he was curbing the effects of human sin. And then he goes on in 45.7, he said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And this language of remnant here, again, that's, that's really important. It's really important because it's a kind of a reference to the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham. He's saying, what he said to Abraham is that he would make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky. That through his offspring, he was going to bless the nations. And so Joseph here is pointing out that God was being faithful to his covenant promises. That even through his suffering, even through all of the, the perceived silence of God, God was being faithful. But not only that, Joseph goes as far to say, he says in 45.8, It was not you who sent me here but God. He says this to his brothers, his brothers who threw him in a pit, his brothers who sold him into slavery, his brothers who did not give a rip about where he was going. He says, it wasn't you who put me here. It was God. And then he picks up again on this in chapter 50 at the end of what Kenna read. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's remarkable. It's remarkable. He, this is what uh, theologians call the doctrine of God's providence. What Joseph is saying here is that God was at work in the midst of all of that mess. See, God's providence, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it this way, says that God's providence is his most holy wise and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. It's a really, I I love that language, but to put it simply, it just means God is always at work, even in the mess. He's always at work. There is nothing random. There is nothing that happens outside of his loving purpose. And Joseph is a man who has suffered greatly. So it means something for him to be able to say that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, the movie Karate Kid or the sequels, which are really unfortunate. Maybe the the show Cobra Kai. uh, That's more current, I think. Um, But the story is about this kid, Daniel, who kind of gets beat up at school, and he wants to learn how to defend himself. He finds Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi agrees to teach him, um, but he has this kind of unorthodox teaching method. So uh, Daniel kind of comes over expecting to learn karate, And Mr. Miyagi just has him doing a whole bunch of, like, menial tasks. He has him, like, painting fences, like, sweeping floors, you know, the wax on, wax off. And this, like, whole montage while he's doing all of these things, Mr. Miyagi is, like, going fishing. And at one point, he's, like, wearing a Hawaiian shirt, coming back from a bar, like, kind of stumbling. Like, it's pretty obvious that he's intoxicated. Like, so so Daniel is just like, okay, this guy is taking advantage of me. Like, he is not doing what he said he would do for me. And there's this kind of iconic scene where Daniel just gets so fed up and he just confronts Mr. Miyagi. And he says, like, what the heck, dude? Like, you just had me doing all of this random stuff. What's the point? And then all of a sudden it all comes together. 
because Mr. Miyagi shows him that he wasn't doing these random tasks. Actually, these random tasks that he was doing, they were giving him muscle memory that would be really helpful for karate. And so he showed him that he, he wasn't just painting fences, he was learning to do all of these crazy karate moves. And all of this stuff kind of clicks together. You see, I think this is similar to how God's work in us is, okay? God's work in us is more than often the same way. We have no idea what he's doing. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, so many of the things that he puts us through seem so frustrating, and we just want to say, I didn't need this. But the beautiful truth in this passage is that God is always at work. He's always at work, even in the mess. But how does knowing that God is at work, how does that change us? What does that do for us? I think uh, in moments of suffering or in moments of pain or in moments where we're just like, come on, God, what are you doing? Uh, we can have two responses. Uh, and I'm getting these just from the, from the book of Job, if you haven't read it, um, but I'll, I'll sum it up for you. Uh, so in the book of Job, Job is a really good guy who some terrible things happen to. And then these two people kind of come to him, two groups of people come to him and kind of give him counsel on two ways that he should respond to this. So the first is his wife. So Job's wife comes to him and says, Job, you should curse God and die. That's, of all the advice I've heard, that is some of it. Um, We can sum that up in saying she kind of advises him to despair. But then he has all of these friends who they come to him, and essentially what they say to Job is, Job, are you sure that God's not punishing you? Like, are you sure you haven't done something wrong? We could sum this up by, like, kind of anxious fear. So kind of the two responses that we tend towards when we're in a place of suffering is on the one hand, we tend towards despair. And on the other hand, we tend towards anxious fear. So what does this passage, what does this uh, story tell us about these things? I think uh, if you're like me, you probably tend more on the side of despair, just being really, really sad and overwhelmed about stuff. And I think this passage helps those of us who struggle in this way because it helps us to see we don't actually know what we need. We don't actually know what we need. Uh, Here's what I mean. In those moments where we say, I don't need this, the more that we look at a story like this, the more that we look at God's redemptive work in the story of Joseph and throughout all of scripture, it, it takes us from saying, I don't need this, to I don't need this? See what I did there? Question mark at the end? It helps us to, to question, maybe I don't actually know what I need. Maybe I don't actually know. We can look back on our lives and say, like, am I the person who is actually equipped to say what I need? And I think if you're honest with yourself, the answer is probably not. But maybe you're not a person who struggles with despair in the face of suffering. Maybe you're a person who struggles with anxious fear. Maybe in the face of suffering, you kind of bear down even harder. But what I want you to see, if that's kind of what you struggle with, uh, if you're the type of person who wonders when you're suffering, is God punishing me? (laughs) Like, is he doing this because he hates me? Did I just do something wrong and that's why he's doing this? Uh, What we see in this passage, it helps us to see that suffering, even suffering that is our fault, does not mean that God has abandoned us. Even suffering that is our fault doesn't mean that God has abandoned us. When all is said and done, there is nothing that won't serve God's redemptive purpose. And this doesn't mean that our pain isn't real. So please hear me when I say that. It doesn't mean that our pain isn't real. 
the bad things that happened to Joseph, like I'm sure were very painful for him, always. But this does mean that our pain has a master. Our pain has a master, and his name is Jesus. And everything sad will come untrue. So as we're kind of closing and putting this all together, I just want to revisit that last section of the Joseph story in chapter 50. Um, I don't know if you could put that up on the screen, Maggie. That'd be great. The chapter 50, it should just, there it is. Um, So uh, Joseph uh, and his brothers, you know, his father has just died. As soon as Jacob has died, naturally his brothers are a little bit worried. Uh, They're a little bit concerned. They're worried that Joseph's forgiveness of them would expire with their father's death. To put it another way, essentially their guilt over what they did to Joseph has led them to question, like, is the work that God did actually real? Like, is the work that God did in Joseph, is the work that God did in us, is it actually real? And I wonder if you know what that feels like, to question if the things that that God has done in your life, were those actually real, or was I just being naive? Our guilt can make us feel like God could never use us. Our fear can tempt us to abandon all hope, And our cynicism can tell us that our suffering is pointless. We can get caught in this place of ricocheting back and forth between hopeless despair and anxious fear. So what comfort can we find in the midst of this? At the end of this story, Joseph comforts his brothers and says this, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph makes it clear, uh, brothers, I am not in the place of God. But his confidence in God's purpose and his kindness was a great comfort to his brothers. What I want you to see tonight is that we can have a much greater comfort because Jesus is in the place of God. Jesus is in the place of God. You see, Joseph's suffering led to the preserving of life. And Joseph forgave his brothers and Joseph treated them kindly, but Jesus' suffering leads to eternal life. And it leads to a much greater forgiveness and a much greater kindness that God has for us. See, on the cross, the greatest evil that has ever happened in the history of the world, the the perfect son of God, dies a criminal's death. That great evil was caught up in the redemptive purpose of God. And y'all, if if God can, can catch something like that up in his purpose, if he can use something so heinous and evil to accomplish his good purpose, what in your life can he not use? What in your life cannot be caught up in this greater purpose? I just want to close by reading uh, these lines from a song. Um, So the title of the sermon I had was God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Um, It's written by a guy, so that's that's the name of a hymn that's written by a guy named William Cooper. Uh, And William Cooper uh, was a a very famous hymn writer, friend of John Newton, um, but he was no stranger to suffering. Uh, He was a man who spent a lot of his life in insane asylums um, and had the point where he just like would question everything. Um, He actually ended his life in that state 
Um, so he was no stranger to suffering, but at, at the tail end of one of these kind of psychotic episodes that he had, he wrote this hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. I just want to read these lines for you as we close. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. See, William Cooper could have confidence that even though this life has bitterness, that there's a flower that's coming. And he could have confidence because of the cross of Jesus. He could have confidence because he knew that his sin had been dealt with. He knew that the most tragic thing in human history had been used to bring in sinners like him. And if God could redeem that, what couldn't he redeem? Let's pray.